it's up to you and me to shine a guiding light and lead the way. United by our cause, we have the power to pursue what we believe. We'll achieve the realization of our dreams. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Horizons. I'm Vaughan Benison. Emergency response planning is something that has been a topic of great discussion across the disability community for some time now. Now that we're reaching the middle of October 2022, we're heading into bushfire season and in some areas of the country, heavy rain season. We've experienced quite a bit of that over the last few years, haven't we? Blind Citizens Australia has been doing quite a bit of work in this area. Featured recently in the BCA Connect program was a session on emergency response planning. I think this is a really important session because it not only talks about some of the work that's been happening in this area, but gives you a sense of what you can do to avoid or to help yourself in the situation of an emergency. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be bringing you portions of that session. We start this week with the first part of the program. Here's Jane Britt, Blind Citizens Australia Policy and Advocacy Team Leader. Today, BCA would like to extend what we have learned from consultations and community forums to invite our expert panel to provide us with their insights from their work in this field and their tips and advice for being prepared for emergencies. We are joined today by Kate Faith, Senior Firefighter, Community Engagement Unit with Fire and Rescue New South Wales, Michelle Villeneuve, Deputy Director, Centre for Disability Research and Policy and Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, and Melissa Fox, Chief Executive Officer at Health Consumers Queensland. Michelle, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. What does person-centred emergency preparedness mean and what does your research aim to do? So we started where it made sense to start, which was to bring emergency managers uh, and emergency services personnel together with people with different function-based support needs to talk about what are the risks for people in emergencies and what can be a better response to make sure uh, that people with different functional support needs um, are safe, well, and uh mostly prepared uh, well in advance of a disaster. And that was a really interesting project because we came out with um, local emergency management guidelines in New South Wales to help promote disability inclusion among uh, across that sector. It was really designed to be used by emergency managers and councils and planners. Um, and though, you know, those people who go out and do community engagement and help us all be aware and better prepared. But we also created a problem for ourselves and for the sector. One of the key recommendations was that people with disability and who have different function-based support needs in their, in their lives and who might have extra support needs in emergency situations, they need a tailored approach to emergency preparedness planning. And that tailored approach uh, to self-assessing your risks and tailoring emergency preparedness to your support needs did not exist. Um, and so we set about a journey of uh, working in partnership with our emergency services colleagues and government colleagues, with people with disability and their representatives, and um, with the services that provide supports to people with disability in the community. And over time, we have emerged together through lots of co-design and field testing and trials, and now uh, a real full expansion of the person-centered emergency preparedness toolkit. It's really a self-assessment tool that helps you to um, really self-assess what are my support needs and capabilities in everyday life. Um, it helps people to learn about and personalize the risk situation where they live, work, and 
play, and then use that self-assessment and understanding of disaster risk to tailor preparedness to their extra support needs. And the, you know, the fourth part of the PSEP toolkit is a really critical part because some people will still have extra support needs that can't be met um, after they've made that tailored plan. And so that is really all about uh, working back in partnership with emergency services and, and governments who make community level plans to keep us all safe. And those community level plans are now about um, responding to those extra support needs and increasing and improving how government plans for their whole community, including people with disability. Melissa, um, how has Health Consumers Queensland been involved in the response for health emergencies for people with disabilities? We have been around since 2008 and there's equivalents in all the other states and territories. And really our organisations primarily have been based on uh, supporting uh, hospital and health services, otherwise known as um, uh, local health uh, areas uh, and um, health, state health departments, um, uh, different providers and universities to uh, create person-centred health services, so co-design and consumer engagement. But when the pandemic hit, uh, we were quite shocked at uh, the very fast shift to um, central command and control around uh, the pandemic response, around the health systems response uh, and around decision making. And it was not what we were used to. So um, as an organisation, we quickly shifted to creating some online mechanisms to hear from people with chronic conditions, people with a disability, people living rurally and remotely about what was and wasn't meeting their needs during the pandemic. And we were fortunate at that time to have leadership up here within Queensland Health, uh, who were grateful at being reminded about the way that we um, were used to working together in partnership and uh, brought us back into the fold to help shape uh, comms and um, models of care. Uh, Michelle, up to um, throw back to you here about what have you found in your research to be important in terms of communication before, during and after disasters? Maybe I'll just describe the framework of which communication is, is central. It's one among eight different function-based elements that we have put into the PSEP framework to help people you know, start where they like um, with each of these elements, look at what applies to them in their everyday lives and, and look at what kinds of extra supports they might have in an emergency as a starting point for thinking about what the risks are going to be when disasters strike. So the actually the, the three that are at the top of our capability wheel are living situation, social connectedness and transportation. The reason those three are kind of along the top is because they apply to everybody, um, disabled or not, uh, function-based support needs or not, chronic health conditions or not, we all have to think about our living situation. Transportation in particular, if we need to evacuate and we don't have access to a vehicle to evacuate, and um, also, if we're sheltering in place, how are we going to get access to uh, services and supports that we need, often relying on transportation? And of course, the social connectedness, we know your, your first responder is the person standing right next to you when a disaster strikes. So knowing who's in your support network and knowing how ready you have access to them becomes pretty critical. So then there are four other elements that we have put into our person-centered framework. And that's because this now blends the research on disaster risk reduction for everyone with disaster risk reduction for the additional and extra support needs that people with disability might have. And those are assistance animals, pets and companion animals, uh, communication, um, personal support, 
uh, management of health and assistive technology. So um, thinking of all of these uh, elements um, collectively, you know, some will apply more or less to each of us, but they really help us to begin to break down that pre-thinking and planning process. Now, if we go to your question about communication, that one is kind of twofold. For people who um, get, give, receive, or understand information differently, including using technology or with support of other people, then that becomes an additional extra support need that people have to access mainstream information uh, before, during, and after a disaster. And I think what we're finding is um, we've seen some improvements. Uh, COVID and COVID announcements through media started to put Auslan interpreters front and center, um, but I think didn't necessarily consider other ways of getting, giving, and receiving and communicating information. And so we still need to think about what are the best ways for people to access um, that information about risks and the development of warnings over time. The other thing about the communication is it's about you know what's going on in the emergency event and how do we get that trusted information but it's also about who do I trust to get that information from and so what we're finding in our research um, with folks in the community is that um, people will will access uh, their trusted people and sources of support for information so pre-planning how they're going to get that information well in advance of a disaster is an important part of the person-centered planning process. And I suppose the last thing I might add to this part of the discussion, Jane, is this idea that if we kind of haven't pre-planned for all those additional things we might need support with, when a disaster strikes is a little bit too late to kind of gain our composure and try to figure out how we're going to do that. We're all quite stressed in that moment. So that's when, you know, our cognitive capacity shuts down a little bit more and our communication skills probably uh, deteriorate a little bit more and our ability to sort of... Um, effectively use information becomes challenging. So pre-thinking how we're going to get, give, um, and access information for emergencies um, would be really helpful if people had a plan for how they would do that well in advance. Kate, I'd, I'd love to know um, where does your work fit into this and what you've learned about um, what people should, you know, think about when they're preparing for an emergency? So the most important thing um, well, let's break it down into two, two different um, circumstances here. So we've got bushfire, the disaster, um, where you'll generally have some time to plan, to evacuate, to enact your PSAP plan. Um, in that instance, it's always best to act as early as you can so that you don't get stuck in a situation where all of a sudden things become time pressured um, and start to rush through and then possibly leave things behind or don't get things as organised as well as you could. Um, when you're living in a bushfire prone area, such as an urban interface, so that is your house backing onto the bush, so you don't want any loose leaf littering gutters, um, no trees um, coming across the house, make sure all dead debris is removed from around the house, lawns mowed, um, no piles of wood or other chemicals stockpiled up against the house as well. It's a little bit different when we come to talking about house fires because house fires are a time critical situation. So it takes about three minutes for an entire room to be engulfed by fire and only about two breaths of toxic, toxic smoke to become unconscious. The biggest thing you can do to prepare yourself for the event of a fire in your house is to practice what you're going to do to get out of that house because it's dark, it's disorientating, especially at nighttime, you'll have to get down on the ground and find your way out through the house that way, which probably is something you're not familiar with doing. 
I would say most of us aren't familiar with crawling around our own houses to find what that feels like. I, as a firefighter, have to do that on a regular basis because we are essentially without sight when we go into a fire and we use what's called a left-hand or a right-hand search to stick against the wall so that we don't become disorientated as we work our way through the property. So I would suggest that's one really good technique everyone can learn and practice with and make sure you're looking at two ways of escaping each room as well because you may have one way that is blocked off and you might have to choose that second option. There's also a few other good little tips that I've been learning along the way consulting with groups. Um, If you've got a guide dog and you've only got one harness, keep a leash at the spare door. So that that way, if you've got some kind of constraint as you're exiting the house, um, potentially consider packing an emergency bag somewhere near the exit too for your guide dog. Making sure that when you call, if if you're the one to call triple zero, and always do this when you're outside of the house, once you've escaped, let the emergency services know if you have any additional needs so that they can act appropriately when they get there. Um, Let them know if you've got a guide dog. Maybe the guide dog didn't come out with you and they know that they've got to go in and get that really valuable resource for you. Um, A lot of people don't actually think that um, telling us will change the situation, but it allows us to think about how we're going to respond as we're driving along in the truck to that incident. So it's a really helpful piece of advice. Other than that, I would say your biggest thing that you've got to have in your house, your smoke alarm. That can be tested with a broomstick or you can have someone else test it. Um, I recommend too, if you've got low vision, putting a big coloured sticker on the bottom can help you test it with the broomstick. Um, If that sounds, it's working. It's fine. If it doesn't sound, it's no longer working and they shouldn't be older than 10 years old also. So that is the only thing that's going to wake you up in the middle of the night if a fire does occur, because smoke actually puts you further to sleep and you can't smell it. And if you want more information or a more in-depth look at this, the recordings from the Blind Citizens Australia Connect program held some weeks ago are now available on the BCA website for you to have a look at. If you'd like to contact Blind Citizens Australia, you can call 1800 033 660, 1800 033 660. Or of course, you can email bca at bca.org.au, bca at bca.org.au. Next week, we'll bring you part two of this session. I'm Vaughan Benison. Thanks for your company. See you next week. We'll achieve the realisation of a dream. Of our dreams